One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You've downloaded the podcast of NewsHour Extra, which deals with one topic for one hour every week. And this week, our topic is going to be introduced by producer Piers Lynch, who is responsible for it. Thank you, Owen. Uh, So, yeah, this week we are looking at um, the high murder rate in Chicago, essentially because it's become a political football with Donald Trump tweeting about it this week as he tweets about many things every week. But this week he tweeted about uh, the murder rate in Chicago, how appalling it is, and kind of using it as a political sledgehammer to smack on the head of the Democratic mayor, Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, so it's a very high murder rate, but also a rapidly increasing one. I mean, the statistic is, as we'll hear in the programme, it went up it went up by 50% last year. 50% last year in a city with already massive amounts of gun crime. And one of the reasons is it's a good topic is is that there are lots of cities that have actually successfully dealt with this, you know, that, that, that had very high rates. I don't know, Glasgow in the UK had a very high murder rate and, and uh, it's been brought down. And so we've got someone from Glasgow who can tell us how they did that. And, and there are other cities that have achieved it too. So it is something, it's, it's a public policy issue with, with potential res- solutions. Sure, if you can get all the arms of state and enough sort of power and goodwill to push these reforms through, then you can make real change in this area, yeah. Great topic and one hour coming up. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and we're going to look for solutions to a particular problem, the murder rate in the US city of Chicago. It rose by an astonishing 50% last year. So now, on average, two people a day are being murdered. Politicians often promise to solve social ills, joblessness and poverty, for example, despite the fact it's not clear how to solve them. But when it comes to crime, there are examples of cities that have found solutions. In New York, for example, the murder rate is now at an historic low. So what lessons are out there? What should Chicago do? Our panel today has got lots of experience of confronting and helping solve these problems in cities all over the world. We've got uh, Karen McCluskey, Chief Executive of Community Justice Scotland, and previously she worked in Glasgow, helping get its rate of violence down. We've got the Reverend Geoffrey Brown, one of the architects of the so-called Boston Miracle, which significantly reduced youth violence in Boston back in the 90s. And with me in the studio here in London, Junior Smart, who, having spent time in prison on drugs-related charges, went on to found a project in London that empowers ex-offenders to work as anti-violence advocates. So let me just start by asking you all very briefly to tell me, you know, you've all been involved in this work, and it is complicated. I mean, these issues are not simple. But perhaps you could start, Reverend Geoffrey Brown. What's the main thing you've learned from all this work you've done? I think with all of the work I've done over the past couple of decades or so, Uh, is the realization that we can't arrest ourselves or prosecute ourselves or jail ourselves out of the situations of violence, that it involves a collaboration with strong community components, partnerships uh, with the private sector, with um, law enforcement, with community advocates. And it also involves the courage to listen to one another, to understand that the complexity of this problem has to be met with a concerted effort, collaboration that works. 
OK, and Junior Smart, what would your answer to the same question be? I think for me, the biggest thing that I've learned is that this is an issue that everybody's got to work in terms in terms of partnership. You know, like you could have actually every single agency out there working in unison, but it's a tidal wave of, of kids that we're seeing coming through the door. The numbers are, are going up, they're not going down, and it, everybody has their, their part to play. We need to be able to lean on each other. OK, that's very interesting, both talking about collaboration and Karen McCluskey. I suppose the thing that I've learned is that I don't know all the answers. It's a really wicked problem and it's, it's overwhelming for most people when you, when you ask them about trying to tackle violence. They, they want to know the one thing that you can do to make it better and there is no one thing. Whatever you do has got to be long-term. You mm. need huge resilience to try and make a change to this and you need as many positive architects along with you, whether in the community, in public policy, in government... And you need an attitudinal and ideological readiness to try and tackle this. Well, we'll talk about it all in much more detail over the next hour. But just to, first of all, sort of just explain and illustrate how serious the situation is in Chicago. And, you know, this is only an example. There are other cities as well that are affected. The violence in Chicago is now so bad that uh, it's actually earned the unfortunate uh, nickname Chirac, which was the title of director Spike Lee's latest movie on the violence in the city. This is an emergency. This is an emergency. Homicides in Chicago, Illinois, have surpassed the death toll of American special forces in Iraq. Hey, Dolomites. Welcome to Chirac. Chirac, where we at, my so that's the fictional version, and out in the real world, uh, the BBC's Ian Panel made a documentary about Chicago meeting some of the men caught up in the violence. Danger. It's dangerous. It's real dangerous. you got people on this block and two with the people on the next block. It's right around the corner. You can't even go under the white lock. You can't even go around the corner. It's, it's, it's a place full of madness. The past few months, I've seen more people close to me and more people that I know that's been shot and killed than I have ever. And everyone's got a gun. Everybody got a gun. I don't know, listen, I've never seen so many guns. Like, we had a lot of guns, but I've never seen so many guns like now. It's everything different now. You know what I'm saying? And it all started from the way they just took all the gang leaders out the, out the hoods. You know what I'm saying? It changed everything. Those voices from Ian Panel's documentary on Chicago. He also spoke to Carolyn Morris, the mother of six-year-old girl Takara, who was hit by a stray bullet. Breaking news update on the six-year-old girl shot while playing outside her home as she fights for her life. A plea for witnesses. To... I didn't even know that my daughter was shot. They steady shooting through the window and everything. So when my daughter ran, we all ran in the house. My daughter said, Mom, my stomach hurt. So I asked my brother, I'm like, did my daughter get shot? He was like, no. And me as a mother, I checked her anyway. And there, when I raised up her shirt, there was her intestine gushing out of her stomach. How common is it, the, the, the shooting around here? Every day. Every day? Yeah, every day. Yeah, every day. Yes, it's terrible. I really, really need to relocate. I can't just sit here and live in fear like that. Well, some illustration there of what it's like in parts of Chicago at the moment and just one statistic to hit that home. Since 2001, more US citizens 
have been killed in Chicago than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. President-elect Donald Trump caused a bit of a media storm this week, as so often his tweets do. Uh, This was his tweet. Chicago, murder rate is record. 4,331 shooting victims with 762 murders in 2016. If the mayor can't do it, he must ask for federal help. It's not quite clear what sort of federal help the president-elect had in mind, but it's not the first time he's talked about violence in Chicago. He did it in one of the presidential debates to illustrate the Obama presidency's failure, as Mr Trump saw it, to curb urban violence. You walk down the street, you get shot. In Chicago, they've had thousands of shootings, thousands, since January 1st. Thousands of shootings. And I'm saying, where is this? Is this a war-torn country? What are we doing? And we have to stop the violence. We have to bring back law and order. You have to have stop and frisk. You need more police. You need a better community, uh, you know, uh, relation. You don't have good community relations in Chicago. It's terrible. I have property there. It's terrible what's going on in Chicago. And we need law and order in the inner cities, Because the people that are most affected by what's happening are African-American and Hispanic people. And it's very unfair to them what our politicians are allowing to happen. President-elect Donald Trump. Now, the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, when he was just in the the ascendancy, rising to power, came up with a very famous uh, soundbite that he would be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. And you heard that really there with Mr Trump as well. Law and order, police and stop and frisk, but also community relations. And uh, we're going to split the programme this week into two halves. So in the first half of it, we'll be talking about these police solutions, law and order solutions. And in the second half, broader social ideas, community ideas, more on the causes of crime and how to prevent crime in the first place. So, Karen, can I just start with you? Karen McCluskey, and just ask you about, in this first half of the programme, policing measures and the extent to which they work. Because perhaps you should just begin by telling us what your story in Glasgow was, because it had an extraordinarily high murder rate and violence rate, didn't it? And, and it? and it really did come down. So why don't you give us the Glasgow story first? Well, so it did. I mean, I, when I arrived in Glasgow and I'd come from another force where we'd had about three murders in two years, and I, when I came to Glasgow, you know, we had quite an extraordinary level of, um, of violence because it's not just murder, it's everything underneath that. You know, it's attempt murders, the serious assaults. And the um, United Nations Peace Monitor had come out and said that Scotland was the most violent country in Europe and Glasgow was the most violent city. And, you know, there is a zeitgeist, I think, that happened where we, we stopped denying the figures and we actually said, you know, you know, we are Scotland and we have a problem and we need to do something about it. I was in the police at the time and myself and a colleague, John Carnican, we went away and we thought, how can we turn this on its head? How can we do something very different? Because whilst we had a great detection rate for murder, I mean, it was 99%, you know, we, had a, you know, we were very good at arresting people and putting people in jail, we actually didn't prevent stuff. And preventing things is absolutely key. Nobody could listen to that piece of footage about that six-year-old girl and think, you know, catching the perpetrator is fine, but preventing it in the first place is, is absolutely key. And, but, uh, you know, and that's what we did. And it, it, was, it was a long-term, 10-year strategy. And just, just to bring home what happened, you know, we'd been hearing about Chicago, but there was this terrible phrase in, in Glasgow, the Glasgow smile. Yeah, there was. I mean, we had, you know, and it's, 
violence is very different in different cities. I mean, we don't have guns, but we had knives and we had some of the worst maxillofacial injuries pretty much anywhere, you know, where we had um, knife wounds to the face. And of course, you know, if you have a really serious facial injury like that, you know, where they put the knife through your mouth, you know, so you almost look like you're permanently smiling, you know, with the scars, you know, it, it affects your whole life. It's a horrible crime. And so, you know, it was it was toxic and we had got used to it. You know that it was just one of those things that happened. And we had to make people think that this was not acceptable, this is not the country we wanted to live in. And, you know, that's how we started. OK, and, and uh, let's, let's... Well, let me, let me just introduce... We've been joined by the Mayor of San Salvador. Hello to you, Naya Bukele. How are you? Hi, how are you, Owen? Uh, and thanks for inviting me, and uh, thanks to all of your panellists. No, not at all. Uh, let me just briefly introduce, because you've just been able to join us, San Salvador has an absolutely appalling problem, doesn't it? Yes, we're probably one of the most violent cities in the world, and we haven't been one of the most violent cities in the world for maybe for the past 10 or 15 years. We have a murder rate of about 100 persons per 100,000 inhabitants. That's, I don't know, maybe, maybe 50 times the average in Europe. The delinquency rate and the, and the rate of homicides is so high that you can just compare it to a war. And just to introduce you, you are a young man for, to be in such a big job. You're 35 years old, elected, and this is your main priority, right? I was first, I was, uh, first elected to mayor of a small town on the outskirts of the capital, and uh, we have a we have a some, some, um, low crime rate, but we reduce it to zero, and we reduce it with social policies. So here we have a, a lack of sanitary services, a lack of health services, a lack of public services, a lack of roads, school, good schools, education, everything. So we ran on a we ran on a campaign that it, it's enough. We have enough money to have all all of these, but probably that money is in really few hands. So we started to, to making these pro, uh, problems and, and to solve them. Uh, for example, in that town that I, that I governed, 70% of the people didn't, didn't even have water. So then when we, when we solved all these problems, people started saying, why don't we get this mayor here to the capital? Of course, the problems with the capital were far better, far greater, and, and far uh, difficult to, to, to solve. It doesn't mean they can be ta- they can be tackled, and so so far we have been done a lot of progress. Let me go to Junior Smart here in London, and you know you've got experience of the streets here in South mm-hmm. London. To what extent do you think the sort of things Donald Trump mentioned there, law and order, more police, stop and frisk, or as it's known in the UK, mm-hmm. stop and search? How much do those things help? It depends on the way you're looking at it. When we're working with young people, if you're you're talking about helping them exit gangs, then actually. Enforcement measures and sanctions can actually can actually help. So the use of home um, home detention curfew, for example, tags and whatever else, they can help provide a re- reduction in, say, exposure to the gang from that young person. You can often give the young person the excuse that they need not to, to, to hang about with the group. Just recently, we've gone through this whole reduction in stop and search, which was, you know, this whole advocate, advocated... Um, reduction because of the loss in resources and loss of police and numbers and whatever else. Some gang members have actually reported back to us that actually it's a crazy thing because now we've seen a big rise of, of lethal weapons, like lethal stopping force weapons, guns, assault rifles and that on the street level and they're falling into the hands of, of, the, of the children. I also think as well that we have to bear in mind the community 
And the community often say to us, there's no point in reporting because nothing gets done. These gangs manage to embed themselves in the community and they're able to do so with almost impunity. If the enforcement measures do have to have teeth, people need to see that things are going to be done. Let's see if, if, if Boston has the same experience. Reverend Jeffrey Brown, as I said, you were involved in these sort of things. Do you recognise what you're hearing there from, from Junior Smart, that these practical law and order, more police, stop and search works? It does if it is enforced fairly, if there's some measure mm. of procedural justice and police legitimacy, if there is an understanding that when we're doing these kinds of tactics that there's a certain level of bias that goes into it and mm. there's a need for training in order to at least have an understanding of that. If it's applied in that way, yes, it works because every community needs some sort of law enforcement. We're, we're a community of laws and those laws need to be enforced. And we either have the formal kind of enforcement, which comes from our police departments, or you have the informal kind, which is the gang member posting up on the block trying to defend it. And in our communities that are suffering from violence, you know, that that latter part is untenable. And yeah. so you yeah. raise the issue there, really, saying if, if it's done fairly, because mm -hmm. if the stop and search is seen to be uh, unfair on one particular community and people are being chosen to be searched because of the colour of their skin, then presumably you know, that, that's when there's a problem, right? No, absolutely. And, you know, in at least in our communities, and Boston is not exempt, we suffer from a lack of community trust in law enforcement. And so law enforcement has to make those efforts in order to build mm -hmm. it. And if you have a kind of tactic like stop and search, and it's disproportionately affecting, you know, one segment of the community, you know, you do not do well in terms of building that trust. And so um, you have to be able to apply these things fairly. And Karen McCluskey, can I ask you about another sort of policing approach, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with, the broken windows idea? Can, mm. you, can you explain what it is and wh what you think of it? Well, it's really about tackling low-level crimes so that people, you know, so things like you know, litter and graffiti, etc., so that people take care of their environment. And, you know, the theory is that it stops escalation, you know, into more serious crimes. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I think policing's a really... People always focus on policing, but it needs everybody to do this. I mean, mm. you do need swift, swift visible justice, you know, and, and Junior and the Reverend Brown have obviously talked about it, but policing is too important to be left to the police alone. It needs to be everybody. We police by consent in the UK and, you know, that means that we have to have a good level of community engagement. It's not just enforcement, the police also do prevention. Mm. And I think if we start to focus more on the preventative side as opposed to just when you get caught doing something dreadful that will be, you know, will be on top of you, then perhaps the police have got more of a role in trying to prevent some of these bigger problems. OK, but, um, I, I take that point. But in Glasgow, when you succeeded, was stop and search part of it? It was a small part of it. I absolutely, you know, we needed great policing. I mean, we certainly needed the moral high ground. We weren't doing everything properly. And there is little doubt that we sent out a very clear message because we had a very high murder rate and lots of the people who were getting caught for, you know, who were, who were being arrested for murder had pending cases for carrying a knife. And quite rightly, victims' groups were saying, this is outrageous. So we really tightened up on that. Mm -hmm. and, and let's go over to uh, San Salvador there and Mayor... Bukele, I don't know what problems you have with the police and public trust in the police, but I imagine that might be an issue for you, making this just altogether more difficult again. Here in San Salvador, the vast problem that we have cannot be tackled by police. It's a, 
I, I said once in an interview that if you deal with uh, some, uh, somebody that is killing everyone and he doesn't care and he's uh, killing several people, he will be considered a sociopath. But if he is a sociopath, then you have to uh, arrest him and incarcerate him because he's a sociopath. But we are dealing with tens of thousands of young uh, people entering the gangs every year, every day, thousands of them. We have almost 100,000 gang members now in the country, and that number is increasing by, by, the, by the day. The prisons are full. We have prison cells that are made for four prison mates, and they have 16 or 20 inside their prisons. So when you have them, then you, you don't have a, the problem as a sociopath. You have a social problem. Mm-hmm. And when you see that all 100% of the members of the gangs are poor, I mean, it's not that 90% of them are poor and 10% are rich. 100% of the gang members are poor and very poor. And 0% of them are rich or, or even medium class. So, Mayor, Mayor, let me ask you, what, what percentage of your murder rate would you put down to gangs? Oh, it's probably 70% or 80% of the murder rate. Uh, right. It's related to gangs. But right now we're just thinking that these people are sociopaths that are wanting to kill, so we have to arrest them all. But that won't solve the problem because even if you violate all of the civil rights, which is, of course, uh, not a way to go and it's not morally and ethically um, uh, proper, but even if you did that, you wouldn't solve the problem because you don't have the manpower, the firepower, the resources or the prisons to put, to put all them in. So it won't work. It has never worked in the entire history of human life. So we have to understand that we're building, that our social fabric is ripped, and we have to rebuild it again. And if we want to rebuild it, then we have to, to understand what the, the problem that we have, which is not a violence problem. The problem is the consequence of our, of, of our problems, which is a huge, huge, huge inequality and social destruction of our, the fabric that makes our society work. Let, let's just see how that compares with other cities. It's such a striking figure that mm. 70 to 80% of this is gang-related. Uh, Reverend Jeffrey Brand, does that, does, does that compute in Boston? I think the mayor is absolutely correct. It's much bigger than a law enforcement issue. We have a social problem. We have a moral problem. We have a problem of inequity. And because it persists in the way that it does, um, you know, just by making uh, gang violence a law enforcement issue, you, you, you don't get at the whole problem. It has to be a comprehensive effort. And it has to be an effort, as my sister in Glasgow said, it has to be a long-term effort. It can't be something that you can just do and just get done within a half a year. Okay. Karen, tell us about the Glasgow gangs. How big a factor are they? Well, we had about 3,500 involved in gangs. And, you know, I mean, whilst it wasn't just about the murder rate, it was about the violent rate, and it was quite it was quite significant, nothing like Chicago or San Salvador. It was... Um, we probably had about 30%, you know, but that's, that's a sort of guesstimate. But violence is under underreported. Only thirty percent of violence is reported to the police. Most of the people that we deal with, um, you know, they they're alienated. They're not part of society. They don't report the violence to the police, so they might come in with a gunshot wound or a knife wound, and we are not the people they call. So there's a whole range of things that are going underneath there. Mm. Junior Smart, do you, mm. do you do you in your work you talk to the gangs? I think probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working with them. And and so t- tell us a bit about what you're seeing here. In London, I mean, you're you're basically recognising what everyone's mm. saying, right? See, I would be more more inclined to to um, uh, stand alongside my Scotland counterpart in in it is in that country a, a public health 
public health issue. You're, you're saying you're not going to volunteer to be the mayor of San Salvador? <laughs> <laughs> well, if they want to invite me, that's fine. I mean, the problem I can see that would happen out in Salvador is it, it would eventually boil down to us versus them. It's the people versus the authority. It's a completely different demographic. And there lies the issues with uh, just, you know, can you translate, can you transplant something um, from a different country with different laws, different demographics, and apply them. I, I, I highly think that although some parts of it do work, you, it's just never, it's never as simple as that. Because if you look at Scotland or London, you'll find that those those young people have got very intrinsic set of needs, very intrinsic set of, set of values, very intrinsic set of reasons why they've become involved, and that's what you need to address. OK, well, we're going to do that in the second half of the programme. We'll take a short break now, but to summarise what you're all saying, it seems that you know police work is important and it's a part of it, but that there are these broader issues you've all identified which you think are important, so we will get on to that. Uh, do get in touch with us, newshour.extra at BBC. .co.uk. You can tweet us at BBC NH Extra, one hour on one topic every week. And so there is now a substantial back catalogue where you're able to get a slightly more thorough discussion than maybe available elsewhere on the media. That's the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week we're looking at the murder rate in cities like Chicago and asking when a city is confronted with a very high murder rate, what kind of solutions are out there? And our panel today, Karen McCluskey, who's got experience of Glasgow in Scotland, uh, Naya Bukele, who's the mayor of San Salvador, the Reverend Geoffrey Brown, who worked on these issues in Boston, and Junior Smart, who is working on these issues in London. Mm. Now then, uh, we're going to hear from Gary McCarthy now. He was the Chicago Police Department's chief, superintendent is the title they use there, but he was in charge, from 2011 until 2015. And he's controversial because he was fired by the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, after the police withheld dash cam footage of the 2014 police shooting of a 17-year-old, Lacan McDonald. So that was in Chicago. Before that, he worked in New York. So he's actually got very interesting experience, and New York has had much more success in Chicago in bringing the rate down. So I began by asking him why there's such a big problem in Chicago. It's not just Chicago. It's happening across the states as a political backlash to some problematic police-related shootings that have occurred over the last few years in this country. We are unfortunately hamstringing the police, making them less effective, uh, starting with our government, our Department of Justice is applying standards that our Supreme Court, they come down with findings and they tell us what we can and can't do, yet our Department of Justice is investigating police agencies using different standards. This is causing police to be confused, less effective in what they do. And at the same time, the criminals are getting more and more bold. OK, I, I, I've seen a few of these uh, videos showing the police shooting people or beating them up. And I have to say, I find them really surprising and, and shocking. I mean, because they just seem amazing abuses of power. So is, is it right that it's all the Supreme Court's fault and all the Department of Justice's fault? I mean, don't the police have something to do with this? The, the actual shootings or, or incidents that you see on video are problematic and where appropriate, police officers should be prosecuted if they violate the law, and they should be disciplined if they violate their department's policies. The problem is the standards are being changed for policing, 
And the police are left in a position where I'm not sure they understand what's expected of them. Let's imagine you were in the White House for a week or two and, 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 you, and you had the capacity to, um, you know, you looked at Chicago's problems and other cities and you said, right, this is what I would like to do to try and solve these problems, to try and reduce these rates of murder. Give me three or four measures that you would undertake. You have to depoliticize policing. What we need to do is focus on performance-based policing, just like you do in big business. I would pull back the Department of Justice and I would, I would work for reasonability in gun laws. You know, this is not about legal guns. The Americans really hold their Second Amendment right to bear arms as a, as a big deal. Uh, but we're not talking about a musket, a smoothbore, one-shot flintlock. We're talking about AK-47s and high-capacity magazines, and people are dying in droves as a result. Tell us a bit more about the relationship, then, between the police and the community. I mean, certainly in, in the UK, there's been huge stress on that, trying to build relations between the police and members of different communities. How much is that part of your thinking? It's a huge component of my thinking. When I, when I came to Chicago, I called it a return to community policing because we were not structured to deliver community policing. We didn't have the same officers in the same neighbourhoods every single day, so they didn't get to learn the community. But the thing that nobody seems to want to recognize is that our stress with the community, particularly the African-American community, is part of American history. Let's not forget that African-Americans were brought to this country first as slaves. And from that point forward, racist laws, segregation, something called Jim Crow, something called black codes, which had it that black men could be arrested simply for being on the street at the wrong place at the wrong time were on the books in this country until the early 1960s in some places across the country and enforced by the white police officer. That narrative of distrust goes back hundreds of years. And it's not going to be when people talk about reestablishing trust with the community, you can't reestablish something that never existed in the first place. So we have a lot of work to do if we're going to make up for history. But the police are not the problem. 4,300 shootings in the city of Chicago, 21 were police-related. 99.5% of the shootings are civilian on civilian, generally black on black. 80% of our victims are African-American. The recognition of the social and economic conditions and the class differences is what's causing the consternation in the disenfranchised communities. The police being the most forward and visible element becomes the focus of the anger and the stress. And the problem has been misdiagnosed. The police are not the problem. There's a social and economic problem, certainly here in this country and I'm sure across the world. And until we first recognize what the problem is, you can't fix it. So that's very interesting hearing from uh, Gary McCarthy, who ran the police in Chicago, talking about policing issues, uh, but also, you know, talking about class politics, which you don't hear many people in America talking about. So one of the interesting things about this is the, the ability we've got in this programme to compare different experiences of different cities. So let's go to Karen McCluskey. You've heard that analysis of Chicago. Does it ring bells with you? No. You know, I'm, there's bits of that that I found quite shocking, really, you know, that... The police aren't the problem. You know, talking about shootings is problematic when someone's lost their life. It just seems so completely away from my experience. And, you know, what I will say about Scottish policing is we've tried incredibly hard 
to sort of engender community policing and to get back confidence in policing and police by consent. I think what he did pick up with, which I thought was quite interesting, was he, he picked up about inequality mm-hmm. and about people who are brought up in, in lots of adverse childhood experiences, no male role models. I can't comment around some of the other policies that he talked about. I mean, Reverend Brown would probably be better placed. Yeah, we'll ask Reverend Brown, but just, just on this point, he's saying that the police are suffering from politicisation, that there's only 20 cases of police killings and the vast bulk of it is done uh, by gangs and by you know, people within communities to each other. That doesn't resonate with you? Well, that, that doesn't mean that you should exclude yourself from that conversation. Only 20 people have been shot by the police. Every one of those should be a disaster for policing, you know. I mean, that's never something that UK policing, we would never phrase it like that. Mm-hmm. I've actually met Gary McCarthy before when he was actually based in the city and I pick up his frustration and certainly politicisation of policing is not a good thing and certainly we don't have that level of politicisation of policing in the UK. OK, let, let's get the perspective of uh, San Salvador then and Nayib Bukele is the mayor there. What did you think of what the police chief and the former police chief in Chicago had to say? Of course, uh, the police chief of Chicago will see it as a matter of policing because that's his job and he's, uh, I bet he's done a great job dealing with one of the most problematic cities in the United States and not in, in his term, but we can remember El Capone and everything. So we know that Chicago has been a... a one of the, the cities they have to tackle the problem of delinquency in, in various areas, and of course the police chief has to focus on policing. Like he said, he said an interesting thing. How can you reconstruct a, a confidence that has never existed in the first place? <laughs> and he's right. The, the, the fact that it has never existed is one of, one of the biggest problems, that you, get, you have to build confidence in something that people haven't been never confident. So policing is fine. I mean, and you have to, to provide to the police to make the proper tackling of delinquency. But at the end, you have to know that this is just attacking the symptoms, not the cause, which is inequity and social injustice. Mm-hmm. Right, Reverend Jeffrey Brown, let me, let me challenge that in this way and point out that you know, there, are, there are cities like London, which has a very high degree of inequality, but a pretty low murder rate. And, you know, there are places where there is extreme poverty and not the same levels of violence as we're seeing in places which are where a lot of people, most people are, are better off and have got a welfare state to fall back on and so on. So... To talk about inequality and poverty is not sufficient explanation, is it? It's a huge part of why we need a comprehensive approach to dealing with the issues around violence. I know Gary. I know uh, he's a friend of mine. I respectfully disagree with a lot of what he had to say. He is correct that there is a history, and he talked about slavery and black codes and what have you. But he needs to understand that the law enforcement component is a reflection of the state. And so all of the things that we had to deal with historically as African-Americans, a lot of the might around that was around the enforcement of these draconian laws. And so rather than try to take law enforcement out of the equation and make it an unbiased piece of this equation, it's very much in the mix. We find ourselves in this situation in the United States because of a history of failed housing policies, chronic underemployment as well as unemployment, poor educational institutions, poor health care. And then you throw in drugs and you throw in uh, guns and you have this culture of violence that emerges. But one of the things that we have to understand is that if we're going to be able to do this 
in a way that has law enforcement as partners, they also have to reform the way they do business. When you have Trayvon Martins and Michael Browns and Tamir Rice and Laquan McDonald's in these, Chicago These are people happening. who have been, been killed by the police. Right. These are people who have been killed by the police. And we have seen uh, camera footage of a lot of these uh, murders. And, 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 and as we look at them, we need to understand that a lot of this stuff would have been thrown under the rug if we did not have some kind of video proof of what had happened. And so when we talk about reform, we're talking about body cameras, we're talking about procedural justice, we're talking about police legitimacy, we're talking about implicit bias training. We need all of that because a lack of trust in the police department is a part of the problem that we're dealing with in the United States. And and just to sort of, uh, you know, make the point that you you do have direct experience of this and when the Boston Miracle as it was called was happening in the 90s you're saying these are the issues you looked at and it worked absolutely I mean you know for us it was um, community residents and community leaders doing business differently for churches it was coming out of the four walls of our sanctuaries and getting out into the streets and meeting the youth where they were and working with the families at highest risk of violence on the law enforcement side it was taking seriously a partnership with you know community leadership and uh, taking you know their experiences into consideration as part of a comprehensive community policing piece. And there had to be checks and balances. Um, You know, people will always talk about the no snitch culture that happens Mm -hmm. out on the streets. Well, there's also on the law enforcement side, the blue wall of silence. And so you can't have that and then look at the no snitch culture and says and and blame the community for not doing something about that. It's a two way way street. Absolutely. It's a two way street. And so when Gary talks about the black on black violence versus, you know, police um, misconduct and police violence, it's not an either or kind of thing and it's not something that we should put against each other we have to deal with the whole thing junior smart i'd just like you to pick up on one point made by the reverend there because you're talking about churches coming out of their four walls and helping and and i don't know if that's happening in london as much I mean, there's much less religiosity in london than there would be in, in the united states but when we talk about community solutions is that faith-based in london or not really to be honest the, the funny thing that we see in in london is that in an environment where there's less funding available, um, it seems that everybody has their own agenda. And that's been one of the biggest pulling factors for us is trying to get everybody to work together because, one, it will reduce duplication. People either think, right, actually, we're the solution, we're the ones that can do this, or actually, no, I don't want to share my service with you, I don't want to share my outcomes with you because that will mean you get the funding. Actually, that same saying that is so well known it takes a community to raise a child I believe the community is the first wall in terms of um, providing any intervention in terms of these young people and fight you know I heard that guy speak I was thinking right but every child that dies is one child too many let's go to Karen McCluskey and I'm going to make the point that uh, I made to Reverend uh, Brown and see what your response would be that there are cities with high levels of inequality and low levels of violence So I think that does require addressing and confronting. You know, I think that we have much more focused on prevention now. And and I do think we have a better welfare state. I think we've got a much more engaged policing. You know, I do think, you know, and I've mentioned it a few times about policing by consent. 
And perhaps there's just, I mean, certainly in Scotland, and I can only speak for Scotland, we seem much more connected about trying to tackle some of the big issues. Mm. And, you know, and we did, we had our zeitgeist way back in 2004 when we just thought, no, we absolutely have to change this dramatically and, you know, embark on a different path. So, so in, in San Salvador, Mayor Bukele, when you look at... We just sort of separate some of these out. We've got poverty, inequality. There are other issues. Uh, guns, uh, also absentee fathers, the drugs trade, gangs. Can you just give us some ordering of the... When you face all these huge social problems, which are the biggest ones that you worry about? Well, it's the social fabric. I mean, this is scientifically proven. If Let's say you get, hypothetically, two, two identical twins and you separate them, and you give one an excellent education and an excellent loving family, and then you give the other one, you left it out in the streets, and probably he's raised by a violent person, or, and he's beaten all of, all of his life, and he receives no education. What are the chances of, of, the one, of the first one becoming successful or the second one becoming a gang member or a, or a violent person? Of course, you can, you can point out a, a special example of a city that, that doesn't, doesn't apply exactly to the example. But the vast majority of, of, of experiments, if you do, let's say, 100, maybe 95 of them, will give you that the one that is being loved and cared uh, will have a better outcome than the one that has been beaten and have been abandoned. So the, the, the fact is that our populations, and not only in San Salvador, but it happens in London, it happens in Chicago, of course the numbers are different because you have to tackle a lot of the other all of the other factors that come in in, in the cities. Good public services, for example, in London you have a public health care system that it's better than the, our private one here. So you have different factors that come in. But the issue is that we have two identical situations, like a hypothetical San Salvador and the real San Salvador, or you have the hypothetical Chicago or, or the real Chicago. And then you see how will Chicago or San Salvador, or whatever city in the world, react to a caring and to a, to a society that provides the needs of everyone and provides a good education, good health care, and reconstructs the social fabric of things. There's an excellent example in Latin America, which is Medellin in Colombia. This was the, not only the drug capital of the world, but it was also the murder capital of the world. Everybody can remember Pablo Escobar and everything. And it was, Medellin was the, probably considered the worst place you can go. And now Medellin is totally the opposite. It's one of the most trendiest places in Latin America. It's a beautiful city. It has turned around 180 degrees. And now Medellin is an example to the rest of the world that things can change. But they did it with, with inclusion, with including the communities, with projects, by dealing with, with the artists, with the hip-hop artists, with the guys making graffiti, with the skaters. And, and they started to work, working with young, with young people to include old people, older people, and then bringing families together uh, if they want to make graffiti, they provided the walls for graffiti to be made, but the graffiti has to has to pro- project a, a good uh, message, like peace message or a Nelson Mandela quote. And then things have started to change because people have started to know that they are being included in society. Let me pick up on some of this with, with Karen McCluskey and then Reverend Brown, perhaps you can come in on it as well. Because what, what, what I'm hearing is that, that, you know, there are solutions out there. And I think, Junior Smart, you made this point to me earlier, that everyone sort of agrees that there are things you can do about this. And yet some cities have a huge problem still. Mm. So it can't be quite that obvious. So, 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 Karen McCluskey, can you just sort of steer us through whether there is consensus on the policy choices that need to be made or, or, or whether there are controversies in this still? 
Well, as I said at the very beginning, no one's an expert. However, I will say one thing that almost, you know, in, in a way you've picked up at some things that are different between us, like guns and, and a whole range right. of other things. But Mayor Bukele mentioned perhaps the most important thing, you know, the fact that we have all these young people and adults who've been brought up in the, the worst of adverse childhood experiences, who've been brought up in domestic violence and drugs and alcohol, parents with, you know, quite extreme mental health problems, you know, and they are in many ways, and I hate to use a phrase, but born to fail. And until we start to address that social fabric that Mayor Bukele was talking about, then we keep on failing. We just focus on the tertiary measures, you know, policing measures, etc. And I suppose, you know, the way that we did it, and it was only our experience, is we started to look at violence like a, a disease process, how you caught it. You know, you've been brought up in a domestically violent family, lots of drugs and alcohol, and we focused on prevention. So primary prevention, good early years, education, proper parenting is pretty much as close as it gets to being magic without being magic. You know? Really? It just works? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we had, um, we had a Nobel, um, Nobel laureate economist, James Heckman, who came to Scotland, and he said, you know, for every pound that you have to spend mm. early years, you probably have to spend £13 at the age of 13 or 14 to get the same solution. You know, I mean, early years is where it's at. Reverend but Brown, then, if, it's, if it's this sort of clear, you know, mm-hmm. why isn't everyone doing it? Well, I think there are a number of different factors. I think politics gets in the way, you know, like what we're experiencing in the United States. You know, we were actually on a pretty good pathway in terms of um, comprehensive reform with the president's 21st century policing initiative. And now the politics will change and we have an incoming president that's talking more about uh, law and order solutions. Uh, Sometimes people don't understand that, you know, the kinds of, of community groups that are active Uh, that we need more of that. I mean, we're talking about a balance of prevention and intervention and enforcement if you're going to, you know, actually make a difference. And uh, a lot of people don't understand that it's not just law enforcement. We're never going to be able to arrest ourselves out of the situations of violence. And as Junior said earlier, we need all hands on deck. I want to pick up, though, with Junior on that point. You're saying you can't yeah, lock your lock up so many people that this problem is solved. Junior Smart, you did spend five mm. years in prison. Yes, five years behind the door. That's five years and a twelve-year sentence. So it's a mm. serious offence, and you've come out of it. And I think on day one, when you got out, you were busy trying to help in South London resolve some of these problems. Yeah. Can we say, in your case, prison did work? I think what what really it comes down to is that the real change happened within me. I think prison by itself doesn't work. I think it can work in terms of giving a community respite. Um, Certainly I've worked with young people and their families have said, you know, like, well, while that person was away, like, we didn't have to worry about our, our son or daughter getting robbed or whatever. I think prison can work in terms of taking people out of the loop. But I think the real change actually happened within me. I mean, you think in terms of prison, there's so many issues around prison. The fact that people become acclimatised, they can make new affiliations in many countries, not just in in the UK. The gang membership, for example, in prison has reached saturation point. So actually, prison can be a really dangerous place, and that's in addition to all of the other issues. I think the real key for me was that there was two things. One, I got to see the 
difference between what my friends were saying, the people that I looked at originally as my family and all that mystification and what the reality was that the real family was going to be my sisters that stuck by me. But I think the second thing that was so crucial is that I was actually given a chance before I was released. So I got released on temporary licence, a day release. St Giles Trust afforded me an opportunity where I sat an interview. I was, it was in a competitive process. I managed to achieve and um, get the job before I got back to prison and the, the day of my release I had a job to come back out to and it wasn't just a backroom job it wasn't a hidden job it was an actual job with real roles real responsibilities and I was given autonomy to develop a project um, and that's what I did and you know 10 years on SOS is London's largest um, ex-offender-led project of its of its type and every year we're seen as a project of best practice but it is under a charity. And what really annoys me is that the work that we're doing with the young people isn't rocket science. We're using trained ex-offenders to provide that holistic, tailor-made, one-to-one support for young people to break the cycle. It seems obvious to us that actually the best person to help support somebody break that cycle is someone with direct experience. But across the board, people tend to think, oh, it's just too risky or something will go wrong. I think it's really important that we use those frontline services that can really make that difference. Junior Smart, thank you very much. And let's finally just give... uh the rest of our panel a chance to make a final point each. Uh, wrapping up our discussion, why don't you start us off, Karen McCluskey from Scotland. I would just say that, that actually change is possible. I sometimes think that we, you know, we look at some of these wicked problems and we think we can do nothing, so we just accept the way it is. And I absolutely hope that Mayor Bukele achieves the change that mm. he wants to because what an aspiration that is. Mayor Bukele, your final point for us? Yes, well, first for, to, to Karen for that, for that hope. And I just think this is the, the time in, in, in world history that we have the most resources. It's the first time in world history that we can feed everybody. It's the first time in world history that we can provide everybody with the most basic needs. And it's the first time in world history that we really have a shot at doing the things right. And there's a lot of people out there that is trying to do the difference. And I just think that it's maybe a stereotype worldview, I don't know, but at the end of the time, it's a, a fact of do we believe in humanity or do we believe in ourselves or, we, or do we don't? Of course, there will be some exceptions, and so you need police to tackle in sociopaths or tackle in people that that want to follow the things that are obvious and respect others. But at the end of the time, we cannot think that a huge demographic of our population is evil in a way, and all of the other other demographics is good, and we have to throw the police at them. But we have at the end in our hearts to trust in humanity and know that things can be better and we have for the first time in the in, the, in history we have the resources and, no, and the knowledge to do it so why not do it if we have it and at the end of the time we can we can we can prove it we just have to start working on it and when people see the results they will say hey look at that it worked so let's put it out let's put it to work in other places and finally i mean it's it's interesting listening to you all because you've all worked on this you've all succeeded and you're all saying you should be optimistic and have hope about it and I, and i suspect reverend brown you you'd take the same sort of attitude oh absolutely i mean i've i've worked in cities um not only across the united states but around the world and in every city that i've been in that's been plagued with violence you'll have a junior or a karen uh who are out working at the ground level, thinking about how to make cities safer. You'll have a mayor such as our friend there in San Salvador who is thinking comprehensively about the larger societal issues. You have people 
who will continue to do this work. They will check their egos at the door. They will see yeah. that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and they'll put their um, shoulder to the grindstone and make it happen. And that always gives me hope. The, uh, the, the rhetoric of a, a man who's preached every Sunday and can, and can address an audience. Thank you very much, Reverend Brown. And thank you to Karen McCluskey, to Mayor Nayib Bukele in San Salvador, Junior Smart here in London. Uh, you can hear the programme again, bbcworldservice.com forward slash news hour extra, perhaps if you just caught the end of it. If you want to get the podcast for this programme so that they just appear on whatever device you select once a week for an hour of uh, hopefully helpful discussion on topics of public interest, that's the BBC News Hour Extra podcast. Uh, email newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Twitter at BBC. NH Extra. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. From our excellent panel and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.